Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Gosforth on the western seaboard on a grey, overcast day, leaves starting to turn in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, Dave. This is a lovely end of the Lake District. Connoisseurs come here, mountaineers go up the valley, but we're before all that. And we're in the churchyard of Gosforth Church, Gosforth Hall Hotel behind us. We're in the midst of the community. Yeah, this is one of the entry villages, isn't it, Mark, for that great mountain array at the head of Wastwater. Uh, and we're here because there's a very famous cross in this churchyard, Mark, the uh, Gosforth Cross. It's something I've seen various times and come and looked at, but not having the ability to interrogate it and know the detail of it, I've not really grasped. But I'm hoping today we will get to the bottom of actually what it does show us. Yeah, I mean, the cross is one of the most important monuments in Viking Cumbria. Uh, Lots of people descend here from all over the world who have an interest in Norse history. And that's our subject today, Mark. We've talked a little bit in the past about some of the Scandinavian words that have been incorporated into place names, particularly the Fells and the Tarns. And we've taken a long view of Cumbrian history, but we've never explicitly delved into the history of Vikings in Cumbria. And that's today's talk. And who's our guest today, Mark? Our guest today is Steve Dickinson, somebody I've wanted to get on to countryside for quite a while now. His grasp of history is uh, quite remarkable and he has a, a lovely feel for the setting. He can read a landscape. And one of the things that Steve has been concentrating on recent times is a theory that he has uh, advanced. He's done a lot of research to find what he calls the lost kingdom of Loch Lynn. And this is this kingdom referred to in Irish literature from that period. Nobody's ever quite found this kingdom, this Norse kingdom, and Steve thinks it's here. It's surrounding us in the landscape around Gosforth, and he thinks he's found some really key landmarks. This incredible hall, he thinks he's found some burial grounds, these crosses, Um, So we're going to walk with him today and try and seek out these lost treasures and this kingdom that once played such a key role in in Scandinavian culture and history. This might be one of the epicentres, the very focuses of life in Viking times when they're at their zenith. I can see Steve over there just over the other side of the churchyard, so let's go and meet him and start learning about Vikings in Cumbria. Well, I'm in the churchyard of the uh, Gosforth Church, which uh, doesn't have a great tower, but has a lovely sandstony look about it in a 
churchyard full of gravestones and it's a compact village with a lot of history and I'm in the company of Steve Dickinson. Great to see you Steve. Great to be here Mark. Uh, where do you hail from? I hail from Barrow where they build the subs and <laughs> uh, I went from Barrow to uh, study archaeology many years ago at uh, Durham University and that's what's given me the passion that I have for the Vikings which is all about what we're doing today. Fabulous. Durham is famous for its output of amazing historians. Can you describe the journey we're going to follow today? Well we're starting here at Gosforth internationally, one of the most important uh, Viking sites it has an amazing range of sculpture, some of which we'll look at. And then from here, we're going to follow the country lanes down to Urton, which is another important early Christian site, where there's a cross that is as remarkable as the one here. And not many people necessarily know of that one. Uh, no, they don't. And not many people know about some of the remarkable place names and other uh, information, archaeological evidence, that I've been working on for many years now around here so some of that will come into our walk as well i hope yeah and we cross two rivers we do uh, we cross the Urt, and what's the other one blank yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so we'll walk round to the other side of the church to the south side and take a wow look at what i think is one of the amazing wonders of the lake district the uh, gosforth cross Come round the south side of the church with the primary school opposite and the lich gate and there's birds singing as ever in a churchyard. Our story today is about the Vikings and the Scandinavian settlement of this area. Can you give us a sense of where you're going to start this story? Well, I'd like to start with the Romans actually, which is considerably earlier than the Viking period. But the Romans gave Cumbria and the Lake District its roads, fortifications and infrastructure, which were capitalised upon by subsequent generations. So the Vikings and their predecessors all benefited from Roman infrastructure and technology when they came here. Vikings came into this setting, but who succeeded the Romans? It was a combination of uh, several different kingdoms. The Kingdom of Northumbria, which is an English kingdom, rich with churches and very grand structures, big halls and buildings, and the kingdom of Strathclyde, which ran all the way from what is now Glasgow, uh, right through Galloway and down onto the west coast of Cumbria. So these kingdoms provided the kind of context for the Vikings to exploit. What we have is a, a recognition that there was a Viking settlement here. We recognise it in place names, and there's a certain mystique about things like Hobbit sheep, how they evolved, but it's separating out myth from the actuality, and you've been putting your mind to this aspect. There's a lot of evidence from Irish history, particularly the early medieval annals written down in Ireland. They record uh, mysteriously the existence of a kingdom called Lothlane or Lothlin. Scholars have attempted to position this either in Scotland or even in southwest Norway, but I've been working on a theory, uh, not followed by anybody else to my knowledge, that that kingdom was located in the Lake District. Within all this context, in this setting, we have this wonderful tall shaft with a cross at the top, a square base with this pillar like a Roman milestone, but far more ornate than ever a milestone would be, and very tall. It's how tall would you say it was? 20 feet? Four metres. There we are. 
we live in two parallel universes <laughs> in measurement. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about this wonderful feature. One of the wonderful things about this is that it's survived as long as it has. <laughs> it's over a thousand years old and it's still in its original setting. And uh, it's one of what were four crosses in here in the churchyard. And that alone, together with the sculpture here in the churchyard and in the church, makes this a remarkable place for Viking archaeology and history. You can see how complicated uh, the sculpting of this upper part of the shaft is. And you refer to a cylindrical like Roman milestone-like look about it. Actually, if you run your hands just a bit higher up, Mark, you can see there's very complicated uh, depiction of what looks like interlace, possibly even bark. And this, yeah. most scholars accept, is built to replicate two things. Obviously something that's remarkably Christian, because it's got a cross at the head of it, but also it has the effect of a tree. And it's thought by many to represent something which is fundamental in Norse mythology, which was a tree called Yggdrasil, which is the kind of world tree that linked the different realms of the Norse universe and linked the realms of the Norse gods to our own Middle Earth, where men and women and animals resided. So it shows us two different cultures coming together. And these carving on it, which has undergone much change in weathering, can you describe what it is? Yeah, I'll probably take up the rest of the programme talking about that because it's so complicated. But I want to draw attention to two things in particular while we're here. Uh, one is uh, just about a metre above your head, Mark, as you're looking up at the shaft. Yep. You can see there's a clearly depicted crucifixion scene yep. uh, with an outstretched figure. You can see just there. Yes. And below that, on the left-hand side, Longinus, the Roman soldier, who is actually uh, poking a spear up at uh, the body of Christ. And then on the other side from Longinus is a woman holding something in her hands. Now, traditionally, people think that that could be a depiction of uh, one of Jesus' followers, like Mary Magdalene, catching the blood. But alternatively, there's some Norse figures that have been found which show a woman like a Valkyrie, a woman warrior, totally unlike Mary Magdalene, in that very pose, the same pose that we can see that woman adopting on the shaft there. So going back to this collision of cultures, we've got Christianity, and on the one hand we've got a Christ and we have the Roman soldier, and on the other hand we've got a pagan goddess or Valkyrie, a woman warrior, catching Christ's blood. And if we go to the other side of the cross, which we can do now, there's something even more interesting that I want to talk about in relation to the carvings here. So we've come round to the other side. So we're looking at the west face of this cross. Again, at the same sort of height, there's two figures. One looks like they're upside down. Can you explain those? Yes, it's very confusing. But I think it was designed to be confusing for the people who were worshipping here as well. This cross not only depicts a crucifixion but on the western side it depicts something which is the end of the world for the Norse which was Ragnarok ah, Armageddon for the Norse here you can see there's an upside down horseman just there oh it's a horse it's a horse yeah yes with I a figure like... above that and then below the horseman's head yes. is inverted which again is absolutely fascinating the turning upside down of the world you can't really make it out because you can see there's lichen growing over some of this. Yes. Um, but this thousand-year-old carving depicts a woman holding a basin above 
a figure, and this is uh, a Norse goddess called Sigyn and a Norse god called Loki, who was a trickster, a shape-changing god, who basically turned the Norse world of the men and gods upside down. Uh, we can see Sigyn keeping something from dropping onto Loki, and the thing that she's stopping dropping onto Loki is the blood of a dragon. And every time this dragon's blood came onto Loki, if it touched him, according to North myth, he trembled, and that was the cause of earthquakes and devastation. Wow. And all that is in that small scene there. She just goes to show a, a cartoon, as it were. Yes. That is a cartouche of that time. Absolutely remarkable. Fabulous. Well, we've seen both the Christian side on the east and the genuinely Norse perspective on the west side. So that gives you the clash of cultures. If we go inside the church, we'll probably be able to express it even more. Well, I've come inside the church, Steve and I. Uh, I'm in the nave, where you can see ahead the chancel, looking east and to the left, the side chapel. And here we've got this most distinctive feature, two particularly large hogsback graves, as far as I understand they were. And perhaps, Steve, you'll be able to explain what the design represents. Yeah, these are as important as the cross we've just looked at. Mm -hmm. in the churchyard. They were found as footings for some of the walls of the original church here when the church was rebuilt in the right. 19th century. But yeah. these are called hogback tombstones. You can see there's an element of a kind of the back of a pig. They're made out of red sandstone, like the cross outside, and they're approximately, not quite two metres long, but just short of two metres, certainly the ones that you're looking at. They're absolutely massive, and also they're extraordinarily finely worked. They're traditionally called tombs or tombstones because they were supposed to be found with people who were buried near them or underneath them. Mm -hmm. But only one of these, of about maybe 40 that are known in northern England and Scotland, only one has ever been found in association with a burial. So they may have nothing to do with burial at all. But what they also symbolise is a Viking hall. Yes. You can see particularly on the one where we're looking at the northern side that um, the tiling of the roof is very evident. Shingles. Um, or shingles or tiles, yeah. Yes. And, and it's got a, a dragon on the top yeah, of it. Yeah, there's the, the dragon on the top of it. They're all about serpents and, as we were saying outside, in terms of dragons and so forth. The Norse believed in a world where these things really existed. Of course, we just know about things like that through Lord of the Rings or Tolkien or something. Yeah. This is something which has been completely relevant to what these people who made these believed in. And again, just on the end of this one, this is known as the Saint's Tomb, this stone that we're looking at, the northern one. There's a crucifixion scene, which you can't really see, but there's the, the arms oh, yes. and the figure it. with a nimbus. So that the crucifixion scene similar to the one that we're looking at outside on the cross. And on the other one here, if we just look round this side, Mark, mm -hmm. we can see there's a battle scene oh, with, with a ship and a warriors with shields on this side. In fact, the shield wall comes all the way through here, wow. these circles here. Wow. It's a very animated yeah. scene of conflict. And we're looking at these now, and we can see what looks like just red stone, can't we? But we sense. know 
the cross outside and these would have been highly decorated. They were in coloured. You said something like a cartoon outside for one of the images we were looking at. Well, these were like an animated cartoon that people could touch and would have been stunning in any context. They told a story and people respond to colour. Absolutely. Color. If they weren't necessarily graves, what do you feel they could have been for? Well, I think they were symbols of very important members of the community, leaders of the community. Where they're found elsewhere, in Cumbria, for example, in Penrith Churchyard or in Lowther's Church, um, these are places, like here at Gosforth, where there were very significant settlements of uh, Scandinavians. So they may not necessarily have been buried near them, but they symbolised some of the achievements of these warriors, for they were warrior leaders mm. at the time when they were made. And they were designed to tell the story, maybe even part of the life of the person that was associated with them. It's a legacy, a statement of the life of somebody venerated in the community. Absolutely. Or who wanted to be venerated. Yeah, it's a memorial to a particular person. Mm. So we've got this monumental statement of the people who are here and the significant people of the community now it was settled. I'd rather like to peel back that period in time as to where they came from in the first place. That's perhaps the most interesting question of all for where we are at the moment because we're in West Cumbria and at the time of the settlement here, West Cumbria was almost a little planet or world all of its own. It was cut off by the hills of the Lake District from the rest of the north of England. And you really get the impression, don't you, when you're standing here in this church, that it doesn't feel like England, really. We're looking out, if we could see beyond the trees here, to the Isle of Man, the Irish Sea, Ireland, and the approaches from Western Scotland. And it's long been regarded that the earliest settlers from the Viking Age here were uh, Norwegians. They were people from the west coast of Norway. They mixed with an astonishingly violent mix of peoples who were all fighting for kingdoms and territories, and they mixed with Christianity. They came into conflict with Christianity because they looted monasteries like Lindisfarne, but they also had to live with the Christians because the Christians weren't going to go away anytime soon. To come back to your question, I mean, how did all this happen? Well, probably from the northwest of where we are. From Ireland or from the Hebrides? Yes. There's sort of a migration from Norway and so on. They're yeah. drifting all the way yeah. down the maritime west That's of right. Britain. The Stepping Stones route, they call it. One of the first places I ever went to excavate when I was at Durham University was a place called the Brock of Bursay, which is an isolated tidal island off the mainland of Orkney. And we were digging this astonishing Viking settlement right next to a really early church site. And you're surrounded by massive waves coming in. That's always given me the idea that, you know, these astonishingly adventurous people with their fantastic ship technology, they were carrying all before them as they hopped from island to island. Uh, they got to the Faroes, they got to Iceland, they got to Greenland, they got to Newfoundland, and they got to um, the Hebrides. Their ship technology, I've just mentioned it just before, was unbelievable for the age. They could build the kind of ships that even now people are replicating them and they say how remarkable they are. They could ride the waves and their poetry, the Viking poetry and uh, literature is full of references to these uh, wonderful creatures. They were alive to them, their boats. They could ride the waves and come into the creeks and estuaries like we have round here of uh, the Urt or the Esk, create bases and attack and just depart as easily as that.
So you have these two approaches to northern Britain, those who come to Jorvik and established the base on the east side, those who come on the west, but there's no sort of crossing. The Pennines are quite impenetrable to them. Yes, and that's even the case in uh, the 10th century when one of the last Viking kings of York, a guy with a remarkable name of Eric Bloodaxe. Oh, great. Uh, he was trying to get back to his kinfolk after being ousted from York, and he chose to try and get across the Staymore Pass in order to get back to where his kin were. You probably know the story, he was murdered on Staymore. And that symbolises how challenging it was to get from one half of the country to the other half. And also it symbolises something about what you've just mentioned, the fact that York was a very separate kind of culture for the Scandinavians to what they found over here in the West, uh, where they started out by invading Ireland and plundering monasteries and coming over to Cumbria and probably plundering the monastic culture over here as well. And then they had to settle down. We have this vision of the Vikings as being bloodthirsty, raping and pillaging... We have one place name in Cumbria, Arusta, which sort of reflects it because Arusta means battle, a skirmish, that's Orest Head. Yeah. And so what we have before us is this scene of this battle with shields and a longboat. So could you give us an expression of that time? Yeah, I'm going to quote from the uh, Annals of the Four Masters, which was written in the early medieval period by some Irish scribe. And he's talking about, well, I'll, I'll read these two quotes and you'll get an impression of what it was like then. Um, there comes over fair Finderbear a keen host from fierce Laithlind. The foreigners are counted in hundreds to do battle against the king of great Itar. And it goes on to say, the wind is sharp tonight. He throws up the white mane on the sea. I have no worries that the wild warriors from Lothlind shall lay their course over a calm sea. These two quotes summarise everything about how violent and volatile the ninth century was, in that case, in Ireland. But these warriors were coming from a lost kingdom over here, I think. We've left the road, the old road, before the coast road. So for this road here from Gosforth going down towards... Sandton Bridge was the main road on the coast. Uh, we've come off the road onto a track, a farm track. We're coming along the edge of a glacial bank, which gives us a chance of momentarily to look down on the rushes and the meadow towards the canalised banks of the Bleng. We came over the Bleng. Bleng, of course, means valley, very much like Blencathra. These are these Celtic words that have survived in the landscape. Survived perhaps because people didn't own a river. They had boundaries on rivers, so the older names survived. And the Bleng has its source, Stockdale Head, uh, underneath Haycock and Sea uh, Talon, right up in the hills. So it, it would have carried a great body of water, making this valley very wet throughout much of the year. Uh, can you give us a perspective on what it would be like? Well, we've come from Gosforth, which is on a slight rise, and we've dropped down into this area of no-man's land almost. And even now, as you were saying, Mark, you can look out, you can see the rushes and the bog just below us. And the only reason the Bleng isn't in that land now is it's got these massive artificial banks making sure that it stays in its present course. And this whole idea of the marshes here and the lakes, like Wastwater, just to the back of us here a few kilometres away, 
This is very much tied in with the name Lothlin or Lothlain, which I've said was recorded by Irish scribes back in the 9th century. And Lothlin means Lake Marsh. Mm. Well, Loch, we know, is an Irish word for a lake. Yes. And Lynn is Celtic, isn't it, for a pool? Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of a marriage of the two. Yes. Well, this gives logic and credence to your principle of a lost kingdom. Absolutely, yep. That was a lovely little lawn all along. There's rhododendrons in abundance. What's significant at this point is... Well, first of all, you look to our left and you're looking at Wasdale. And anybody who knows about Wasdale will know about the mountains. I can see Buckbarrow, Middlefell, Great Gable, Lingmel, Scorfell, Ilgilhead, Winrig. It's that heroic backdrop of mountains. I gather, Steve, that what we're witnessing in the foreground and it needs trained eyes like your own to identify. It's something really, really significant. I say really, really, because I think this is of national importance. I think so. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Mark. Thanks mainly to satellite imaging of the area in 2018, when we had a very dry June, the crop marks around here were extraordinarily clear. And by crop marks, I mean where there are ditches and buried features. And the air images of this area that we're seeing here uh, revealed not only an enormous egg-shaped enclosure of about 15,000 square metres. That's a rough calculation. It's slightly larger than the size of two football pitches put together. This enclosure's got double ditches. You can see it very clearly on this side nearest to you, Mark. On Crikey! The and right in the middle of the enclosure, under the hedge, there's a hole. Uh, and the post holes and the post trenches for the hole are clearly visible. Uh, this building originally would have been around 60 metres long. Wow! Now It's a cathedral. It's, it's absolutely huge. And, uh, for example, many people will know the late Queen laid in state in Westminster Hall, which was built by the Normans. That's the largest known medieval hall possibly in uh, northwest Europe. That's 73 metres long. So this building is only 13 metres shorter than that. But this would have been made entirely out of timber. We have this concept of a big hall. Could you sort of describe what it would visually look like to the observer? Yeah, it would have looked like a, one of the stones that we saw in the church, in a way. Those big hogback stones in Gosforth Church were modelled on Viking buildings. They were curved, but also they were monumental. Examples in Uppsala in Sweden, for example, they found uh, some of the doorposts at Uppsala were built out of entire tree trunks, like not just part of a tree, but a whole tree. <laughs> so uh, you can get the idea of the effect that these buildings would have had on a visitor and how awed you would have felt walking into them. There would have been long fires in the middle of them. They would have been very smoky. The smoke would have been swirling into the rafters of this enormous structure. There would have been tens, possibly hundreds of people around because the wealth required to build and maintain these kind of structures was huge. So you're talking about really important individual or individuals who were responsible for marshalling the forces to create these. And just imagine, we're looking out on a woodland here, which has a lot of fields which were date from the 18th century onwards, but when this was built, there would have been a lot more massive trees around here to use and to harvest to create the structure like this. The tree was everything to them. It gave them heat 
it gave them light, it gave them their ships and their houses, their halls, their world revolved around the working of wood. The tree of life. Mm. Well, we've got this vision of this huge structure sitting out in that meadow there, back by those great mountains. When will they have put that there? Well, my best guess on this is probably 9th century, which is quite early for most scholars. But this fits the picture of this warring kingdom that I'm building a case for here in the Lake District, which we know, thanks to the Irish sources, was active in the 9th century. And also, you know, the comparable structures in Norway and in Sweden and elsewhere, oh. those are places which were being constructed and acting as models for this site around this period. So a massive construction referencing those massive mountains that we can see in the background. We're looking out at Great Gable, as Mark's mentioned, and it towers above like a huge dome of a pyramid mm. uh, in the distance there. And visitors coming up to the hall from the coast, and that's the direction behind us, would have seen this massive building with Great Gable behind it. So the significance of this swollen ground is uniquely important to this site? Yes. We've already been up from the Bleng and from the marshes, and we're now on a really sandy, dry ridge, a huge promontory running from Wasdale down towards the coast. And this is the context for this site. We've got the Bleng and its marshes to the north of us here, and to the south of us here we've got the Urt and the marshes, but also the access for the ships and all the wealth that the Vikings were bringing across from the Irish to put into the landscape around here. And of course, you've got the ships on the coast and the access, but their great focus was the pastures for their sheep. Yes, yeah, and the sheep, we haven't talked about the sheep at all yet, but the herdwicks, supposedly brought over by the Norse, there's actually good DNA evidence which was published in 2014 for the Norse having brought herdwick sheep into the Lake District. Wealth on the hoof. <laughs> the wool didn't just provide clothing, uh, that's a very naive view of the Vikings uh, with their woolen clothing. Uh, it also provided the sails for the longships. And without the sails, the longships wouldn't have been half as powerful a piece of technology. And it took, according to recent research, uh, a team of 20 individuals around two years to make an individual longship sail. So that just goes to show you how important wool was to them. Well, to contemporary eyes, that field looks pretty innocent. What you've given us today is a vision of a thousand years ago, which is a remarkable thing. Anyway, we'll go and think about the coastal perspective on all this. We've emerged from the Lonin and come upon a crossways of tracks. And this is a moment with a different kind of landscape. Earlier this year, we did a, a podcast that invoked dialect. And, of course, that is built on early Vikings. We have the evidence of all these words on the map as well. So it's, they're annotated on maps. You've had a bit of a plod over a map, Steve. <laughs> and you've spotted that there's a great concentration here that really are very strongly Viking-based. Yes, this area perhaps more than any other in the Lake District, has the greatest concentration of a particular term for an important farmstead, a Garth mm. name, uh, which is Old Norse. I was talking just now about the fact that this super hall, the mega hall of the area, 
uh, would have required the efforts of hundreds of people to support it. A wealthy group of farmers. Well, we're looking on the map at the sites of the farms of these people. Obviously much adapted and altered now. (laughs) But uh, it it is quite remarkable what the number of Garth names around here. So can you pinpoint a a cluster? Yeah, we've got quite a few here. There's some Garths up near Gosforth, Wingarth, Between Guards, Guards End, Ben Garth over near Nether Wasdale, Gates Garth down at Sandton Bridge, and then just down nearer the coast, we'll talk about in a minute, near Urton, there's Green Garth Hall. And also while we're on the subject of names, there's a couple of names on the map that I'd like to draw your attention to. Mm-hmm. One's Lakenby, which is a very unusual name. Yes. Um, B or Boo is Norse for a settlement. Yeah. There's no settlements at Lakenby now, but the satellite imaging that I was referring to in relation to the Mega Hall indicates there's quite a lot of archaeological evidence for a settlement there. In the right. Park. The Bible of the English Place Name Society indicates that it relates to a personal name. Uh-huh. Lack or lake, lake settlement. Until we actually do more investigation, we're not going to be able to tell much more about it. But it is a fascinating uh, survival from that period. There are some that are indicative of a completely different kind of activity. Um, just to the northwest of us here, we're here, mm-hmm. about a kilometre in that direction on the rise, is Gallows Hill. And then Sorrow Stones, which is a farm just behind the trees over here is referred to as being a place where people who were hung got their final drink ah. before they were taken to the scaffold. Agreed. And just to the south of Sorrowstones is Hanging Howe. The landscape is redolent of execution. Grim, grimness. Yeah. A bit of a context. All these garths, in effect, are clustered around and supporting that great hall that you discover. Well, we come on to Stockbridge, spanning the Urt, which rather like the Bling is a Celtic name. We have no way of knowing what it means. But it's a great volume of water even today. And of course, its source, as many people might know, is Waswater. And therefore, the great array of mountains under the Scorfells, all that water from Styhead comes down here. And this lovely little bridge with lovely parapets ivy on one side and a great bower of an oak tree above us it's a wonderful quiet spot and actually i can just see Erton church tower so we are near our journey's end but today this moment we're talking about water steve and the significance of how the scandinavians moved around and how they beached and made land yes often uh, neglected in studies certainly in cumbria because everybody's focused on settlements and on the place names and on burials and that kind of thing is the fact that we're on one of the most accessible coastlines of any part of northern England because of these wonderful gently shelving sandy beaches perfect for bringing on ships up to but also the satellite imaging that revealed that mega hall that we've been looking at up on the promontory above us here the same imaging has revealed evidence, really good evidence, for Viking fleet bases, similar to those known in Ireland as Longports, where in Irish archaeology they've long been established as places that Vikings fortified to protect their ships on estuaries and on navigable rivers, such as the one we're standing over looking down on today. 
I'm intrigued by the name Drig. Yeah, Drig basically means to drag in Norse. Uh, it's a portage point between the coast, which is just down the river from where we're at, up to the Erz, which we're standing over now. You mentioned the Lost Kingdom and the accessibility from Ireland for that fleet that would bring the wealth from Ireland over to Cumbria and make this the great focus of that kingdom. Absolutely. I mean, we know that Ireland was very wealthy partly because of its monastic culture that the Vikings aspired to the wealth of. <laughs> but what it was also significant for was the fact that it was a massive focal point for slaves. The Vikings were a big slave owning peoples and that kind of portable wealth either in human terms animal terms or in terms of silver gold and the relics from the culture of christianity in ireland these were things that were brought across the sea and went further east from here to york and even to points in norway and sweden and elsewhere so to be clear the the fleet weren't kept on the beaches because they were vulnerable to any storm to be washed away so they came up the tidal estuaries a considerable distance to the limits that's right what they found in ireland was that the long ports that referred to uh, these ship bases are not on the coast it's far too exposed so they put them inland or in a curve of a tidal river where they could be sheltered and where it could be fortified as well because you've got people who are wanting to attack your your wealth and nick it and steal your slaves. We can find good evidence for these kind of sheltered ship bases here on the tidal rivers here in West Cumbria. So we've got this picture of all these different elements, the longhouse, all these are elements that are significant to how they came across and so forth. Can you pull all the threads together in one statement, Steve? Yeah, well, the Viking life revolved around these animate parts of the landscape that we've talked about already in terms of the woodlands, in terms of the sheep, in terms of the nature and the sea and the rivers, the earth, everything coalesced for them in their rich whole culture that was the focal point for their families, for the retainers, for the chieftains and the earls and the kings. These places were redolent with meaning for them. And we found today, in quite a short walk really, from Gosworth down to where we're finishing here, everything compressed into one small patch of landscape, which is absolutely fantastic in terms of meaning for the Scandinavian archaeology and history of this country. Everywhere else it's diluted. Here it is greatly focused. From your early days at university, you gained a great passion for the Vikings and your research here has intensified your love of the subject. Can you sort of express it, what it means to you? Well, it means a huge amount. I mean, I feel like I'm discovering a new, literally a new country that nobody knew about in the Lake District. Everybody thinks that they know the Lake District and it's been written about for centuries and there are hundreds of books about it. But I find what drives me is, and what gives me the meaning to get up in the morning is this idea that something new is being uncovered and archaeology is great for doing that. Why is it so neglected in Cumbria or here specifically even? Well one reason is that we're a long way away from the universities where people get interested in these kind of things. We pointed out earlier on that Cumbria is uh, remarkable here because we're sheltered from the rest of the world almost by these magnificent mountains, yeah. Scorfell and Gable and the rest of it. It's like a secret landscape this that isn't really understood. No. And no academics really got to grips with that. Um, there have been people looking at Gosforth and at the cross and 
eminent academics, Rosemary Cramp, Richard Bailey, to name but two. Uh, but they've looked at individual elements of it. I'm interested in the whole picture now. Well, we'll head up the bank towards that uh, tantalising tower and um, round up the experience. Come underneath the little canopy of the lich gate into the churchyard at Erton. And Steve, wow, what a view. Lake District has views, but not many from churches that are remotely comparable to this one. I mean, they say, look, you've got the Screes, Winrig, Ilgill Head, Ling Mel, Great Gable, Ubarrow, uh, Middlefell, Red Pike, then Buckborough, then Sea Talon, then Haycock, Little Gowder, Crag and Cor. Woo! They're all there, aren't they, Just What a view. I absolutely agree, Mark. This has got to be the best view from any Cumbrian churchyard. It's just stunning, isn't it? Mm. And the leaves are just turning on the trees as well. And much of what we can see now from here, apart from the odd farm and the odd field, it wouldn't have changed that much from, like... 500,000 years ago, really. Mm. A very forested landscape with the fells hulking over everything in the background. You can see that trees have always played an important part in the agriculture of this area. And a lot of these are really old trees. I mean, they've not been cut down <laughs> like they have been in other areas. No. So you're looking at a, a well-forested, well-tended landscape here. That's the word, tended. Mm. This has been an agriculturally nurtured landscape so we'll go round the back of the church or the west side i think you've got something else to show us this is it Woo! <laughs> crikey me this is a bit of ruskin to my eyes <laughs> it looks ruskin but it's a lot earlier than john we're looking at a cross which is completely different in many respects to the one that we saw at Gosforth, but is assigned by scholars to the same age. I don't think we mentioned the age of the cross precisely at Gosforth, did we? Mm. But it's assigned to the period between about 900 and 950 AD, as is this one at Erton. Made out of the same kind of stone, stone red sandstone, a lot more lichen on this one, so you can't see the decoration as clearly. But it's a slab of stone. It's not like the tree form of the cross that we saw at Gosforth. It's not as high, maybe about three metres tops, maybe two and a half, something like that. But with a very rich interlaced pattern on it. Strikingly different, because it's in two dimensions almost. And the one at Gosforth was far more prominent in, in three dimensions. Spirals on the side as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's no kind of figures on this cross, like the ones that we saw at Gosforth. There are no images of a crucifixion or any kind of mythological scenes at all. All of these crosses would have been highly coloured and decorated, as we were saying. This would have stood out like a beacon here in the churchyard. And uh, it would have been here before the church that we see here uh, now? Yeah, this is a 19th century church, but there would have been a predecessor to it, probably a wooden church here in this context. Again, visible from a long way away, proclaiming the fact that this was a Christian territory. And people coming here would have been able to worship at this cross and read the cross in much the same way as we read the cross at Gosforth. It's just that the meaning for the patterning of this has long gone, really, for us. What the Vikings came across in Britain and Ireland and elsewhere were different belief systems, different languages, mm -hmm. um, different faiths. 
And the people that they had as slaves and the people they conquered or colonised had their own beliefs and that effect on their culture, we can't even start to comprehend it really here in the UK today where it's a secular society and religion doesn't play as much of a part uh, for the majority of people as it does for certain other parts of the world. But here we can see it played out in these stone monuments. The importance of them isn't just that they're remarkable in their own right, but they symbolise something that was happening over a thousand years ago, which was alive and very interesting and still is of enormous interest to people today. If we go back to the Gosforth Cross, where you've got this conflict of two sides, the pre-existing Christian uh, symbolism and the Viking symbolism on the other face, here we have uh, a unified Christian symbolism, perhaps, but it's not being rubbished by the Vikings. And this tells you some kind of resolution that occurred. Yeah, I think what we're looking at here because of the survival of this cross and the fact that it's not been broken up by anybody. It states continuity of Christianity here over and above the pagan religion that the Norse brought with them. And we've also crossed a boundary between where that massive hall and its enclosure was, which could conceivably have been a pagan cult site as well as a, a dwelling on an enormous scale. We've crossed away from that over a river a boundary into an area which is completely different. We're surrounded by a massive open landscape with massive hills in the distance. And this is right on a promontory here. This says to me now, and it probably said back a thousand years ago, this is Christianity, we're survivors. We're the ones who represent uh, eternity and continuity. We're also seeing evident here the fact that the Vikings adopted Christianity themselves and all those wonderful gods, the pantheon of gods that they had, and the places where they lived, including the high mountains. All of that had no relevance for later Christianity whatsoever. Well, we've been through the Norse saga with you, Steve. It's been a fascinating experience. It's redolent in the landscape, and you have brought it out beautifully. Just to uh, round off our wonderful day with you, uh, we do our quickfire questions, just to set the scene of you in this landscape. What was your first Lakeland memory? Uh, being carted up Great Gable in a rucksack by my dad. Well, how old were you at the time? I was very young, but I can still distinctly remember the smell of... It was an old Bergen rucksack, and I can distinctly remember that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, was he a keen hill walker? He was. He was a keen climber and walker. And then he had me and my sister. He stopped climbing and walking. <laughs> There's a message in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you a particular favourite fell? Great Gable. I think it's a magnificent mountain. Unlike on any other summit in the lakes, you feel like you're above everything there because of its location. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Oh, it would undoubtedly be Wordsworth. Wordsworth was a nature fiend par excellence, a poet without parallel, and you can't beat his writing. And he was a humanitarian as well. You know, look at what happened at Dove Cottage. They had little, but they gave what they had to people that passed their door who were equally destitute. I mean, he was just amazing. Herdwick or Red Squirrel? Ooh, no, that's a difficult one. I would say, because I've seen and enjoyed the, the company of so many Herdwicks on my travels in the lakes, it would have to be the Herdwick. Have you a favourite view? I would think probably the Scorfells from Upper Eskdale, actually, because nowhere else in the lakes do you get the impression of absolute majesty. Seriously 
great mountains. Maybe from the hard not Roman fort? No, I think you've got to go right up into the wild of Upper Estelle because you've got to follow the Esk. Then you get right into this wilderness area, a long way away from anywhere else. And then the mountain wall, it's like an amphitheatre that runs from slight side all the way around to the Crinkle Crags. and It's just epic. There's nowhere else quite like it in the lakes. From Great Marston, yeah. on the south ridge of S Pike. Yeah, it's brilliant. Brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Have you a particular memorable walk that you'd like to share with listeners? Well, my favourite, probably in the lakes, uh, well, there are two. So can I have two instead of just the one? Go on. Right, yeah. well, OK. Well, it's going up Wallabarrow Gorge uh, in the Dudden Valley, from the Newfield Inn uh, to Grass Guards and then following the road back. Uh, it's wonderful. It's like you're in a different world in that gorge because you've got the river, massive boulders, great pools for swimming on a summer's day it's fantastic so there's that and then the second one is the walk that takes you from Glen Ridding around to uh, Howtown around Ullswater that wonderful quiet side of the lake there with the woodlands and views over to Helval and it's beautiful what is your favourite season of the year in Lakeland? Whoa, now, are these, these questions are really difficult. Do you ask all your guests these? No, no, we, we spare a lot of people. Right, OK, well, I'm, I guess I'd have to plump for autumn, really, because yeah. the colours are just stunning. Yeah. You're, you're vulnerable because you're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Favourite pub? The Newfield Inn in the Dublin. When I was a kid, my parents took me and my sister camping at Wallabarrow, and then nobody knew these places existed. And that pub uh, was a hatch in a wall where somebody served you a drink and you couldn't eat anything there. <laughs> but if you ever go there, it's got the most fantastic banded slate floor from Walnut Scar Quarries. It is absolutely amazing. And it's just a great crack in there as well. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, if you were to take a Lakeland book on a desert island, which particular uh, book would you choose? It would have to be The Western Fells by Wainwright, followed possibly by one of your exceptional guidebooks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Western Fells mean a lot to you? The Western Fells are like the true spirit of the Lake District, really, because they're remote. You've got to work your passage to get to them. The most epic fells of all, think of like Pillar Rock or, as I've said, Great Gable, Nape's Needle, Scorfell Crag, the, the mountains par excellence of the Lake District. I understand that one. Could you describe a perfect Lakeland day? Um... Swimming in the pools in the Dudden on a hot day, yes. epic, epic yeah. followed by a pint in the Newfield. Oh, yes. Burke's Bridge is a good yes. spot. Uh, Burke's Bridge is good, yeah. yeah. The pools of the Dudden, there's loads of them, so you can kind of work your way down the river, you know, jumping from pool to pool. Rubber dub dub yeah. in the Dudden. Yeah. Okay, um, if you were Prime Minister of the day, oh. what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes and heritage of Cumbria? Well, it's already a World Heritage Site, and we've all got to recognise that. So if I was the Prime Minister of the day, I'd make absolutely sure that this and other national park landscapes in this remarkable country get the funding and the assistance that they need so that they can be looked after for future generations. OK, when the few friends gather and they scatter your ashes or bury your bones, <laughs> have you a spot that you envisage they will go? Top of Scorfell Pike. I'd like my ashes scattered up there because A, it's the highest mountain in England and so you get this most amazing vista from it. I've done a lot of research on the Neolithic axe working industry in the central fells of the lakes 
and uh, Scawfell Pike is my go-to mountain. It would have been the go-to mountain for the Neolithic peoples 5,000, 6,000 years ago because that's one of the sources of the axe stone which was traded, distributed, carried across most of England, Scotland and Ireland. So it has a lot of historical meaning for me. Journey's end, a few beams of sunlight brightening up the day, Mark, brightening up the cross as well. Uh, we're still in the churchyard at Erton. First thing to say, Steve noted the view from this church. It's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. I spoke to somebody parked outside. It obviously gets its patrons who come here to walk because it's a lovely setting, but they replicated what Steve had said. It's about the best view in Lakeland from a churchyard. It's mountains, writ large, but you see it in perspective because you get to see all the woodlands leading into the mountains of the screes and so on. Totally new to me, actually. I mean, obviously, you get that view from other places, but not in quite that panoramic way. And a really kind of unexpectedly lovely walk as well. As you know, I'm a big fan of the, these little sunken lanes and these lonnings, and we had quite a few of them, and that pack horse bridge... Beautiful. None yes. of it walked, really. We saw one person today. Yeah, this is a local's walking area, really. There's a thousand years' worth of farming life represented in this and a wonderful place to wander and ponder. And it's a <laughs> lovely space. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing, Steve. Steve? <laughs> wandering and pondering. <laughs> uh, Steve and the Vikings. Now... I'm really relished filling in that gap in my knowledge. Only time and excavations will tell if Steve is right about his theory of this lost kingdom. But it kind of makes sense to me. It's a great location. I'd love to envisage that great hall in front of the Great Gable. It needs to be resurrected in some form, even if it's in a museum in some beamish kind of (laughs) establishment. I think it'd be well worth attempting to... um, put in a planning application to the Lake District National Park Authority for a huge grand hall in the meadows there. I'm sure they would look very kindly on it. The Eden Project of the West Lakes. There we go. It's worth a go. That's something for Steve to think about in the future. Probably zip-wise would get an easier ride than uh, a great hall, but I'd prefer to go to the great hall personally. (laughs) You get this picture, don't you, of them coming across the Irish Sea, finding this landscape that doesn't look so different to home and moving in here in this very complicated relationship with Christianity. The Christianity, of course, was already here. And them bringing their Norse gods and this kind of quite moving difference between the the two crosses that we saw, one of them holding on to both of those cultures in a way, and this one, they've kind of lost the battle with Christianity in the end. Quite. They've become more domesticated. (laughs) Yeah. they settled down a little. Uh, We're on episode number... 90. 90. We we got there in the end. Um, For all 89 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media, Mark. Countrystride 1 on Facebook and Twitter. If you like the podcast, you can support us in one of three ways. You can recommend us to friends and family. You can buy our books, uh, our suite of walking guidebooks, all walks with a country stride feel at www.countrystride.co.uk. Finally, you can support us on Patreon. 
And next up, I don't think we know what we're doing. Yeah, I think most of our listeners have worked that out already. Right. Okay. <laughs> I see. Yes. Right. I get the implication there. Well, it doesn't matter. It's for the wind. We will find something wonderful for a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but for now, signing out from this fabulous panorama of the Western Fells and Urton Churchyard. 